as a federally qualified health center, we serve the entire community. And a portion of our patients are in the LGBT community, and many are not. But because it's a federally qualified health center, it's often lower income. And so you have issues of technology disparity where people may have a cell phone, they may not. They may have an email, they may not. We find our younger clients usually have a phone, but often don't have a a PC or tablet. Our older patients may or may not have a phone, may or may not have another device, but often struggle with the technology. Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source for insights and best practices on the digital transformation of healthcare. Join host Patty Patmanaban, CEO of Demo Consulting and best-selling author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how consumerism, technology, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with healthcare and technology leaders. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Harry Fox, the former CIO of CareFirst Blue Cross Blue Shield. Harry has a very interesting background. He has served in the payer as well as in the provider segments of healthcare, formerly a regional CIO at Kaiser Permanente, among other things. And uh, more recently, he's been very closely involved in uh, the Whitman Walker hospital system in Washington, D.C. But I'm going to let Harry speak a little bit about that uh, on his own. Harry, thank you so much for setting aside the time and welcome to the podcast. Oh, great. Thank you, Penny. Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll just start a little bit with my background and then Whitman Walker. So Whitman Walker, just to direct you, is not a hospital system, but it's a federally qualified health center. and it was started back in 1979 to serve the needs of the gay and lesbian community of Washington. And it's since evolved with all kinds of services for the growing demand in Washington. About 10 years ago, it became a federally qualified health center. And today it offers medical, dental, mental health, specialty care, pharmacy services in multiple locations, and then specific youth services. It also has a division that does clinical research in things like HIV and hepatitis. It's got a policy and advocacy arm and an education arm. And I joined the board back in 2014 when I was still CIO of Care First. And we restructured a couple of years ago. So now I sit on two boards. I sit on Whitman Walker Health, which is the federally qualified health center where all the clinical services are. And I also chair the board of Whitman Walker Health System, which houses the Whitman Walker Foundation and the Whitman Walker Institute for Research Policy and Education. And it's been a fascinating ride because my own work background began, I've been in healthcare forever, but began around 1999 in what was then called e-commerce, which we now call digital health. But I really worked in that space beginning at PricewaterhouseCoopers, then through Coventry Healthcare as their vice president of e-commerce, and they're they're now an Aetna company. Then at Kaiser Permanente as the regional CIO, and then um, lastly at Care First, and then in, in more recent years as a consultant out on my own. And so all of my 
work, even though my roles grew over time, had at its, at its anchor and its core digital health. And I had the opportunity at beginning at Kaiser Permanente to implement the Mid-Atlantic region's first telemedicine for primary care and certain specialties like dermatology. And then at Care First, worked extensively with third-party telemedicine vendors to implement that service for our members. That's a little introduction to Whitman Walker and a little bit about my background. No, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And of course, uh, it is also a matter of uh, pride for me to also mention to our listeners that uh, Harry is on the Board of Advisors for Demo Consulting. And I have to say that I am extremely grateful and honored to have Harry on our board. And we've We've benefited greatly from his mentorship and advice. So thank you for that, Harry. Well, thank you. That, that's very generous. So let's talk a little bit. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Whitman Walker and your population. How has the pandemic impacted care for Whitman Walker's patient populations? It's been dramatic because when Washington D.C. issued their stay-at-home order, I believe it was back in March, we shut down for two days and over two days plus a weekend, pivoted completely to virtual services. Women Walker uses eClinical Works as their EMR. And in a three-day period, they had to kind of bring up the module, test it, develop patient education documents, develop staff training documents. They implemented DocuSign because all the forms that you would fill out in the office now mm-hmm. had to be done virtually. And luckily, CMS, right around that same time, made some changes in both repayment So we were able to do, if we couldn't do telemedicine, we could do an audio encounter with a patient who might not have, be able to do video services and we can get reimbursed for it. And CMS also lifted some of their licensure restrictions. So before all of our patients came to us in one of our locations in Washington, D.C., and now because we serve that the tri-state area, we have patients in Maryland, in Virginia, and then a small population of patients around the country that come to us for our specialty LGBT care. So before the pandemic, if you weren't licensed in that state, you couldn't virtually see someone in that state. That's been lifted, at least temporarily. So we pivoted over a very short time. It opened on Monday morning, and Everything went virtual, except for a small number of patients who were still coming in for more serious issues, COVID-related issues, breathing kind of issues. But all the rest went virtual. And it's continued to evolve. I mean, we started out with everything on eClinical Works. And for those patients getting behavioral health, some of that in individual sessions, some of those in group sessions, we found out eClinical Works didn't handle groups. It handled patient to doctor. So we pivoted to Zoom for behavioral health. Also because the bandwidth demand was better in Zoom. So, you, you know, someone with lower bandwidth could still get high quality video with Zoom. ECW had a little bit higher requirements for that. So we now operate with eClinical Works for all of our medical and dental patients And then we use Zoom for behavioral health and substance abuse treatments for individuals and groups. Now, I will come back to the technology choices. And uh, I imagine that what you went through is kind of what a lot of other CIOs in uh, large health systems go through as well, making the right kind of technology choices and making it work. And 
eventually ending up with more than one platform for doing the same thing. Just pausing for a minute on, on the whole digital enablement that you had to stand up in a very short time, or Whitman Walker had to stand up in a very short time. Were there any unique needs for the LGBTQ populations that you had to take care of while standing up these capabilities? There's a couple aspects to this. So as a federally qualified health center, we serve the entire community. And a portion of our patients are in the LGBT community, and many are not. But because it's a federally qualified health center, it's often lower income. And so you have issues of technology disparity where people may have a cell phone, they may not. They may have an email, they may not. We find our younger clients usually have a phone, but often don't have a a PC or a tablet. Our older patients may or may not have a phone may or may not have another device, but often struggle with the technology. I have a 92-year-old mother that I do tech support for all the time. And and it's, you know, I know how hard it can be when you're trying to get someone to hold the camera a certain way and, you know, point the camera here. And a lot of people have these challenges. So there's knowledge challenges. There's challenges of just the community we serve. I did some looking before the, before this call and about half of our patient population is below 100% of the federal poverty level, and 39% are below 50% of the federal poverty level. And we have folks at the other end of the spectrum too. But when you have this tremendous diversity of background expertise, access to technology, it makes rolling out telehealth you know, ubiquitously difficult. So we have patients that can only do a phone. We have patients, because they live at the lower end of the, the poverty level, may not want us to see where they live. So they, they prefer food. They may have access to technology, but they're uncomfortable having their home seen. So you, you get into these very interesting, unique situations that are not LGBT specific, but are more, more issues of equity and what people have in terms of education and access to high-speed internet and technology. I hear this a lot, Harry, and telehealth is not a one-size-fits-all. Firstly, you did mention uh, earlier that a lot of your uh, telehealth or virtual care visits are actually audio, and uh, that seems to be a theme that I hear consistently across health systems when I talk to their executives. And of course, the socioeconomic status of your patient populations matters a lot in terms of their access to their devices, their preferences. I talked to a CIO a couple of weeks ago. They serve a Medicaid population in Southern California, and they have to design their solutions to be backward compatible with devices that are maybe three, four, five generations behind, uh, let's say, the latest iPhone. And so this then leads us to, obviously, the questions of digital divide and health equity and, and so on. What are So, hey, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. What are you seeing in terms of efforts by the technology community to really address these disparities and making healthcare more inclusive for everyone? It's an interesting question because, for example, we got two small grants at Whitman Walker to purchase three Wi-Fi-only phones. That's helpful up to a point because the individuals in the community may or may not even have access to Wi-Fi. There is no Wi-Fi in Washington, D.C., as there is in some areas. So... It's useful if someone doesn't have a phone, but they still have to be able to get to Wi-Fi to be able to then have a a virtual visit. 
I'd say the other kind of related topic, there is a lot of point solutions I see emerging, but if they're not integrated into the electronic medical record, they're likely to fail. Every time you've got a standalone point solution, it is more work. You know, so, so for in the example I gave with Zoom, when we're using Zoom, we have to schedule the patient in the EMR and then schedule Zoom separately. If we're using eClinical Works for a virtual visit only, and we're using them for the, the digital part as well, it's all set up within the system. We create the scheduled event. We say that it's digital. Automatically, the patient gets an email with a link and then later a text with a link. So there's some really fast emerging, I think, useful technologies in this space. And there, and there have been for a number of years that the, the issue all along has been interoperability and integration. And so the point that you made, Harry, about uh, standalone solutions being interoperable straight out of the box is an important one. Because without that, then you're creating additional work for everyone. But at the same time, uh, to go back to the point you made about uh, let's say your EHR platform that has all of its capabilities under the same hood. It's easier to launch it, easier to integrate with the backend, easier for all the billing and all of the administrative processes. However, they may not be best in class solutions, which is exactly the point you made when, when you had to go outside of eClinical Works and go find another solution because your native capability within your EHR platform wasn't doing the job. Now, this is a conundrum that is very, very, prevalent right now in healthcare. And uh, we do a lot of assessments of health systems to look at their digital maturities and how they're really doing the trade-offs between what's native to the EHR platform and what is a best-in-class solution out there that has uh, superior capabilities that make it worthwhile stepping outside of your EHR. If you just expand the Zoom versus eClinical Works situation you went through, how do you kind of roll it out across a broader ecosystem? And oh, what do you see is, is the, the conundrum in front of CIOs now? You know, the larger, well-funded delivery systems, they have the luxury of having enough cash that they can choose best-in-class solutions and integrate them themselves or work with a vendor to integrate them. If you're a CIO of a small clinic, you don't have that luxury. In Washington, in Whitman Walker's case, eClinical Works is funded by the DC Primary Care Association for all seven FQHCs in the District of Columbia. So it's not a technology choice Whitman Walker made. They wouldn't have been able to afford that kind of platform without the DC Primary Care Association. So your ability to pick best in class really depends on who you are and what kind of assets you have to invest in technology. The, The bigger systems just had the luxury of doing a lot better job of picking best-in-class solutions. Although I will say that there's a thorn there too, because if you let best-in-class run wild, you have a situation soon enough where vendors get acquired, what was best-in-class this year is not best-in-class next year. And so you're, you're pulling things in and out of connectivity around your electronic medical record, which is kind of the heartbeat of it all. So you've got to choose very carefully when you think about going best in class. I think you've also got to think best in class plus who's going to be here in five years. Who's not going to get acquired by a bigger player because they're so small right now, even though they're great. Because that can also cause a lot of rework and a lot of spending down the road. 
Yeah, especially if you get acquired and then all of a sudden you find that your contract is getting rewritten and all of a sudden your cost of ownership is a whole lot different exactly. than it used to be. Now, you've seen all of this from a, from a CIO standpoint. Tell us a little bit about how your experience with CareFirst as a CIO of a health plan, how is that different from uh, your similar role at a leading provider, which is Kaiser? What are the big points of difference between payers and providers at a broader level when it comes to approaching digital patient engagement today? As you know, I mean, Kaiser has two arms of its company. It has the insurance company and it has the whole care delivery operations. And because of their scale, Kaiser has the luxury of truly picking best in class. And they have been an early investor in EHRs. They really put the Epic EHR on the map. And they've been a big investor in digital solutions for their patients. When you get to the payer side, it's a very different world because there's a lot of intent to help on the clinical side, but it's really around the edges as, as, as far as I see it. Because at the heart, you're an insurance company. And so when you look at the member portals of an insurance company, they are your claims, your explanation of benefits, you know, your annual deductibles and your copays. They may have other services like telemedicine, but they're really rolling out telemedicine in support of the clinical community outside their four walls. So it's a little, it's a, it's a different perspective. My observation is the payers often have more money to invest in technology. The very large clinical delivery systems have money, but the smaller hospitals, they can really, really struggle to stay abreast of the technology. And, and as you know, implementing a hospital EMR like Epic and Cerner is millions and millions of dollars and a multi-year process. And it they often are make or break projects for the organization. So oh. it, it, it takes a lot of a lot to bring up these massive uh, EMR solutions. I agree with that. And our own research within my firm suggests that uh, at least half of the hospitals out there, the 5,500 or so hospitals out there, at least half of them are still focused on getting the most out of their electronic health record system. They don't have the luxury, the financial ability, or quite frankly, even the internal resources to take on a search for best-in-class tools in order to serve their population as much as, the, much as they would like to. A lot of that is obviously financial, but there's other factors in play as well. Switching topics for a minute, uh, Harry, let's talk about the regulatory environment, which of course has a big role to play when it comes to the adoption of some of these technologies, who pays for them, what is the pace of adoption. So telehealth, for instance, telehealth benefited greatly from the waivers that were put in place in the, in the immediate wake of the pandemic. The waivers haven't gone away, but they're still not permanent. So there's a little bit of a question out there. There are other things that uh, are getting rolled out too. The, the CMS uh, hospital price transparency rule went into effect in January. So that, I imagine, opens up the hood a little bit for consumers to get some understanding of what are shoppable healthcare services out there and at least exercise some degree of choice when it comes to buying healthcare services. And finally, the interoperability rule, the final rule goes into effect later this year. And you mentioned that that is a very important consideration when it comes to making technology choices. So what does all this mean now for the pace of acceleration or pace of adoption of digital health and telehealth? The United States, unlike a lot of countries, has 
healthcare at the local level, rules at the state and often county level. We see public health, you know, with the pandemic is been a mess of a rollout because everything's at the local level. In, in Maryland, for example, we have state rules following CMS rules on COVID, and then we have county versions that are different. So by county in Maryland, when you get your inoculation shot will vary because the rules are different. And I say that as a backdrop because the reimbursement and regulatory landscape is a little bit like this. When you think of the fact that providers during COVID almost universally are getting reimbursed for telemedicine, whether it's a private payer or Medicare or Medicaid. Before COVID, they didn't get reimbursed for a phone call. They are temporarily getting reimbursed for a phone call. But if that goes away, that really hurts the lower income portion of the patient population. Same thing with provider credentialing. You know, Whitman Walker Health, for example, wants to serve their communities in Maryland and Virginia with telemedicine services. And the rule switches back to what it was before COVID. So providers need to be credentialed in each state. That's going to be a barrier for us. So the more that CMS, HHS, and the states can break down these healthcare islands and barriers through rulemaking or credentialing, I think it's going to be critical. When um, Care First was looking to do telemedicine, we were looking to hire a third-party company to be our telemedicine provider. One of the big challenges was finding a company that had providers credentialed in every state. And not all the, the companies did. So being able to, to learn the lessons of what worked and what didn't work during this pandemic and be able to carry some of those temporary regulations and make them permanent, I think will be really valuable as we go forward. I think that's, that's right on the money. Can you talk a little bit about the startup ecosystem in the context of Whitman Walker? I don't know, you mentioned a couple of startups have come up with some interesting Interesting ideas like the wirelessly enabled phone that you talked about, which yeah. I thought was a very interesting idea. It's frugal innovation, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Looking at the startup ecosystem from a broader lens, what are they getting right today and what are they missing? I would say Whitman Walker, for the most part, is using more established vendors. But I did a lot of work at CareFirst looking at emerging technology in the digital space. The biggest challenge I see is if you've been in the space a while, you've had multiple vendors tell you how incredible their new thing is, whatever their thing is, whatever their thing happens <laughs> to be. And what I've seen over and over again is they don't understand the complexity of medicine. They don't understand the complexity of health insurance. And so when you look at, you know, the life cycle of a, of a claim in insurance, you look at the workflow in the clinical delivery side these are incredibly complex today. And any vendor that wants to make it, I think one has to really bring in enough clinical expertise that they understand. They're not naive about how complex the healthcare world is. And then secondly, I would say, going back to what I said earlier, they have to be integrated with the major players. So for example, Whitman Walker is implementing a texting solution called Well. And if you look on the Well website, they integrate with all the major EMRs. So we're looking to do bi-directional text messaging with our patients. Right. We've got to be wary of, of HIPAA rules about privacy as we do that. And so going with a major player, one is important. 
but also going with a major player that fully integrates that into the MR is absolutely critical out of the box. So that we're, we don't have, we're not creating an island somewhere of information separate from the MR. So those are two key areas I think are critical success factors. So clinical knowledge, clinical workflow knowledge, and out-of-the-box interoperability. And I would say deep domain knowledge, whether it's on the payer side or the clinical side. Got it. Too many of the startups I've met over the years think they're the best thing out there, and they don't understand the complexity of the domain they're trying to enter. Well, since we're talking about tech firms, uh, we have to talk about the big tech companies too, right? Amazon, Microsoft, Google. They all have their sites set on healthcare. And by all accounts, they are doing some interesting things, of course, they're all leading with cloud in some way, AI, ML, and so on. And of course, Microsoft companies like Microsoft have been in the enterprise workplace collaboration software space for a really long time. What can we expect from them going forward? It's a great question. I, you know, on the truly clinical side, I personally don't think a lot. I think they've had, you know, you know, Microsoft touted its its own health record years ago, which it's now shut down. Health Vault, yeah. So I think they, they've all struggled with solutions that rely on deep domain knowledge of healthcare. But if you take a broader view, you know, AWS has done well with their, the part of AWS that they call, it's not HIPAA certified, but it's something like that. But it's an area that's more secure to meet HIPAA regulations. And Microsoft and Google have similar parts of their domain that's a big area because there's a lot of fear in the clinical space and the payer space of what do you put in the cloud? And if I put it in the cloud, what happens if it's breached? And what are my liabilities from a HIPAA perspective? So I would say to payers and hospitals and you know, clinical delivery systems, you know, look closely at what these three companies call their HIPAA space in the cloud because they take no liability. Yeah. <laughs> They offer you lots of increased protection, maybe from their regular everyday part of the, the AWS or cloud environment, but they'll indemnify you for very little. But nonetheless, it's, it's where the world's going. And I think you're going to see more and more movement to the cloud, but I, would, but I would also tell the healthcare domain spaces to move very carefully and thoughtfully because there is significant risk at the same time. Well, there's so much more that we could unpack uh, in this conversation, Harry, but I guess uh, we, we are out of time for this podcast, so we're going to have to leave it there for today. But it's fascinating, uh, the insights you provided, and uh, we'll be talking some more in the in the coming weeks and months. So thank you again, yes. Harry, for being on the call, and I really appreciate you sharing your insights. I think the, uh, uh, the, the insights that we've learned through the work that you're doing at Whitman Walker, especially for LGBT communities, and I'm sure there's other minority communities or marginalized communities out there that have their own needs. And, and we, right. you know, we have to be really, really mindful of making healthcare inclusive for everyone. And the good news is that I think, I think there is a real sincere effort in that direction. So thank you again for sharing. You're, you're very welcome. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can reach us at info at the big with your feedback and questions. This podcast is brought to you with the support of our partner, Powbox. Secure email for modern healthcare right out of the box.